Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, more weak economic data today sent the U.S. stock market to new record highs. At least the Dow and the S&P hit new records. Uh, NASDAQ, not quite, but very close. The dollar also hit a new low for the year. The dollar index, I think, settling in at 95.10, right on the low of the day. That's down 63. Some of the currencies up stronger. I think the Aussie dollar was up about one in 1.3% on the day, probably the strongest of the major currencies. You know, the Aussie dollar is very close to a two-year high. It's at more than a one-year high, as is the Canadian dollar, which was very strong this week on the back of a rate increase by the Bank of Canada. But dollar falling across the board, obviously foreign stocks better than U.S. stocks, given the tailwind that they have from appreciating currencies. What was the news today? Oh, by the way, Gold prices up, not again, nothing spectacular, just over $11. Given the weakness in the dollar and the weak economic data, gold should be moving up a lot more than it is. I still think that there's still a lot of overhang. There's still a lot of short selling going on, but I smell the mother of all short squeezes coming. Silver up about 30 cents, back up to 16 bucks. Remember, it got as low as 15 or maybe 1505, 1510. I don't think it quite hit 15 even. Uh, earlier in in the week the dollar index though at 9510 that is down just over seven percent on the year we ended last year just above 102 in fact in january the dollar index almost hit 104 
I think it got to about 103.8 something. So we're down like eight and a quarter, eight and a half percent since the January high in the dollar. And the year is only half over. So I think there's a lot more momentum coming, especially in light of the economic data I'm about to get to. And Janet Yellen's testimony, she testified up in front of Capitol Hill Wednesday and Thursday. This is the first chance I've had to talk about it. So we're going to get to that. But first, looking at the economic news that came out today, the big report, the weaker report, was the retail sales numbers, which were supposed to bounce back in from May's down 03 And they did manage to revise that to only down 0.1. But instead of getting a 0.1 rebound, we had another drop. We had down 0.2 in June. So that's back-to-back declines. In fact, I think that's three consecutive months of falling retail sales. The picture gets worse when you strip out uh, car autos. Because last month, we got minus 0.3. That was unrevised. They were looking for June's number to be up 0.2. Instead, we were down another 0.2. And if you strip out gasoline, it's even worse than that. They were looking for up 0.4. We got down 0.1. So very, very weak retail sales. This was supposed to be the quarter of the big bounce back. How are we going to bounce back in GDP without retail sales? We also got consumer prices that actually came out weaker than expected, which You know, that is supposedly bad news, the way the Fed spins it, because the Fed's trying to get higher inflation, at least the way the CPI measures it. And they were supposed to get an increase of 0.1 for uh, consumer prices following last month's 0.1 decline. And instead, we came in unchanged. And year over year, CPI up 1.6 versus an estimate of 1.7. And core, stripping out food and energy, They were looking for up 0.2. Instead, we're up 0.1. So when Janet Yellen testified uh, earlier in the week, the only thing that she's worried about is that inflation is not high enough. I mean, she doesn't seem concerned at all about the weakness in the economy. The only thing she's concerned about is that there's not enough inflation. But uh, given these numbers, obviously, people are now going to start to think, well, maybe that the Fed is not going to raise rates or as, as many rate hikes as they thought. In fact, the probabilities of rate hikes did come down today, along with estimates for Q, uh, Q2 GDP. The Atlanta Fed notched it down for the second time this week. They're now down at 2.4 percent for Q2 GDP. Remember, at the beginning of the quarter, they were at 4.3 so they've almost halved their estimate from 4.3 down to 2.4. The limbo continues. The New York Fed is still sitting at 1.9. Uh, so they've been there for a while. They haven't moved down yet, but I think that they will because I think 1.9 is still too high for the GDP numbers. So other private forecasters lowering their estimates for GDP today. But Janet Yellen just does not seem to be worried at all, although in her testimony, she did indicate that she thinks interest rates have almost normalized and that we're almost done with the hikes, that we don't have that much room to hike rates. They're at 1%, 1 to 1 and a quarter. This is exactly the low point they got when Greenspan lowered them down to inflate the housing bubble. And now we're almost normal. By what textbook is a 1% uh, rate normal? But I think, you know, she's acknowledging that there's not much room to go, given the amount of debt that we have. Now, Yellen is still bluffing that they're getting ready to do quantitative tightening this year. 
that they're going to start unwinding the balance sheet this year. You know, in her testimony, somebody asked her, I don't remember if it was a representative or a senator, but somebody asked her if she's worried that of the effect of shrinking the balance sheet on asset prices, because the congressman pointed out that, well, you know, Janet Yellen did quantitative easing that because she wanted to push up asset prices or the Fed. Ben Bernanke started the program, and the, the purpose of the program was to create a wealth effect by propping up asset prices like stock prices, real estate prices, bond prices. And clearly it worked because look at how high asset prices have risen. And the only reason for the rise up until maybe the Trump mania was the, the Fed. And so he said, well, aren't you worried that now if you reverse the process, if you start removing that liquidity, if you start shrinking your balance sheet, right, quantitative tightening, isn't that going to make the asset prices go down? And Yellen basically said no. I mean, she said, well, we think that, yes, there will be some very slight impact, but it's not going to happen for a while. And then it's just going to be a very little bit. I mean, what is she talking about? I mean, first of all, how does she know? You know, don't worry. Don't worry about the stock market. I mean, she's already talking about how stock prices are overvalued. And now she wants to pull out, pull the rug out from under the market and tells everybody not to worry. Don't worry about it. It's not going to have an effect or it's only going to have a very, very minor effect years later. I mean, I mean, come on. If you prop up the market by printing money and buying bonds, and then if you reverse the exact process by selling the bonds you bought and destroying the money you created, how is it possible that the market's not going to come back down? It's like saying, I'm going to throw a rock in the air and then it's not going to come back down to earth. It's like almost like not believing in gravity. It's cause and effect. If quantitative easing caused asset prices to go up, how can quantitative tightening not have the reverse effect? In fact, Steve Leesman on CNBC was asked a similar question, and he seemed to think that it didn't matter. I mean, what he basically said was that, well, you know, when the Fed uh, intervenes in a, in, a, in a crisis and prints a lot of money, that it can have a very positive effect on the markets. But then when everything is great, if they want to take away the accommodation, it doesn't do any damage. I mean, how does he know that? And first of all, you know, it didn't help the economy. It did prop up the, the, the market. But the Fed didn't just do quantitative easing during the crisis. The Federal Reserve continued quantitative easing years into the so-called recovery. So it wasn't like just an emergency program. They did QE2. They did QE3. The, the emergency was long over. And the Federal Reserve continued to print money to prop up asset prices. You know, again, it's like thinking that a heroin addict can stay high without heroin. Like we're going we're gonna to shoot this guy up with a bunch of drugs. He's going to high as a kite, and then we're just going to take all the drugs away, and it's not going to affect him. He's going to feel just as good without the drugs as he did with the drugs. I mean, this is all a bunch of nonsense, but I guess, you know, she has to say that. What is she going to say? That, you know, our quantitative tightening is going to collapse the stock market? They want to blame the stock market going down on Donald Trump. They want to act like their monetary policy has nothing to do with it, right? They want to pin this on Trump, because as I said in my last podcast, Trump's got his name all over this stock market, just like one of his buildings or one of his golf courses, right? This is this stock this stock market is now the Trump Tower. And when it comes tumbling down, guess who's gonna get blamed, right? The same thing with the economy. Remember, I was always saying, what is the excuse gonna be? At some point, the Fed is gonna have to reverse course. They're gonna have to admit the economy is weak. They're gonna have to go back to QE and cut rates. They're just looking for an excuse. Trump's given them one. He's the fall guy. 
He is their excuse, right? He came in here and just screwed up this great economy. The Republicans came here and who knows what they did, but whatever it did, we're right back in the same ditch that George Bush, the last Republican in the office, put us into. And so now the Federal Reserve is going to have to get us out. You know, one of the other really dumb comments that Janet Yellen made, and she makes a bunch of them, so it's really hard to just pinpoint any one. But this one in particular really stood out because she was talking about the balance sheets of consumers or households. And she was optimistic. And she said, you know, things are getting better for households because mortgage debt is way down. And she made a big point about the fact that mortgage debt is down and that this is a positive sign for household balance sheets. I mean, what, is she kidding me? The reason that mortgage debts are down is because mortgages don't exist as much because homeownership is at a 60-year low. So yes, a lot of Americans that used to have mortgages on their household balance sheets don't have them, but they also don't have a house on their balance sheet. They don't have any home equity because that's gone. But what they do have on their balance sheet is record auto debt, record student loans, and record credit card debt. I mean, I guess Janet Yellen's going to ignore all that and focus on the fact that mortgage debt is the only debt that's down and not recognize that the reason it's down is because the people don't have mortgages anymore. But the people who still have mortgages, they got plenty of debt. But I tell you, a lot of people that no longer have mortgages to pay have rent to pay. And in many cases, people who are renting are actually in more vulnerable position now than people who had homes they couldn't afford uh, with mortgages going into the 08 financial crisis. And the reason was when people got in trouble on their mortgages and they just stopped paying, you know, they got to live in their home for two or three years before the bank could kick them out with a foreclosure. So that was great. You had three years of mortgage-free, rent-free living. But today, the people who are now renting, right, because they no longer have a house, they are a renter, you know, you skip a few months worth of mortgage, worth of rent payments, and you're evicted. You're out on the street. So believe me, it's a bigger liability to have to pay your rent, because if you don't pay that rent, you're out on the street. Whereas if you don't pay your mortgage, okay, you're, you, you know, you got a free place to live for a few years. So I would say that a lot of people that have rent to pay today, as opposed to mortgages, in addition to record high car loans, student loans, uh, credit card debt, Households are in much worse shape now than they were then. Yet Janet Young continues to spread these lies. Just like, again, she talked about the demographics and why, you know, the reason that fewer people are working is because of the baby boom retiring. Despite the fact that just this week, there was another article I read, I put it on my Facebook page, showing that labor force participation for the elderly just hit a new record high. I mean, the older people aren't retiring. They're too broke to retire. I mean, doesn't Janet Yellen understand that it's the 20-year-olds and the 30-year-olds? That's where the labor force participation is collapsing? Now, they're obviously not retiring. I mean, who retires at 25? So what is the Fed's explanation for that? You know, why are young people dropping out of the labor force or never even getting into the labor force? They're just going from their parents' house to school, to college, right? Then right back to their parents' house. Except now maybe they, you know, they, they're like Greg Brady uh, from the Partridge family. You know, they got a nice room in the attic or they're living down in the basement now and they're just set for life. They never even get into uh, the labor force. One market, though, that is heading in the other direction are the cryptocurrencies. And I mentioned this on my last podcast about the bear market that they're now in. And the bear market is continuing. We're closing the week on a, on a weak note, although I guess these cryptocurrencies don't, I mean, they keep trading, right? They're, they trade 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So they never really close. But at the end of the day, Friday, or at least where I'm looking right now, I'm looking at the price of Bitcoin 
Bitcoin right now is at 21.52, down 8% on the day. We're very close to the lows of the day. The low is 21.40, uh, although who knows where it's going to be by the time this podcast is actually up and running. But we're now down you know, almost 30% from the peak price, right? We're up above a 3,000, and now we're down about 30%. I think cryptocurrencies in general have given up better than 35% of their market cap uh, since hitting a high, what, a couple of weeks ago. So uh, Bitcoin is actually regaining a little bit of the market share that it lost because I think now it's back up to about 46% of the market share. And I think at the lows, it got down to maybe 39% of market share when the total market for cryptos was close to $120 billion. Now it's down at $77 billion and and dropping quickly. But, you know, when I first started talking about a Bitcoin. And you know, a lot of people I see comments on my on my page, oh, Peter Schiff has told people not to buy Bitcoin since it was $10 or $20. That's not true. I, I didn't start talking about Bitcoin on the podcast or anywhere until it was about $700. It was a it was around the time that they, they started accepting them. Richard Branson was taking them to go to the moon. There was all of a sudden it went from 200. It's it really broke out. And that was the first time I, I spoke about it. I mean I knew about Bitcoin for a number of years before I, I really started talking about it. But when it got up to that level, that's when I started saying, hey, this thing is a bubble and this isn't going to work. Now, of course, it's three times the price, right? Bitcoin is triple where it was when I talked about it as a bubble. It just means that now it's an even bigger bubble. But one of the things I initially said about Bitcoin, because people were saying, but, you know, it's scarce. It's like gold, right? There's only a limited supply, right? And I said, well, it may be scarce. It's nothing like gold, but there is an unlimited supply of other digital currencies. There's not an unlimited supply of other metals that have all the properties of gold. I mean, there's only one metal on the periodic table that has all the properties of gold, and that's gold. But there is an infinite number of digital currencies that can be created. And when I said this initially, I mean, Bitcoin, I don't think it was the only one. I think Ripple was around or Litecoin. There were a few of them, but not that many. I mean, you can, maybe you can count them on one hand, right? Now there's thousands of them. Thousands of these things are over a thousand. And, you know, I just look at this one page to see the top 100 coins. But that's exactly what I said. I said, they're going to keep on creating them. The more successful Bitcoin is, the more the market is going to supply more cryptocurrencies and they're just going to keep on growing and growing and growing and the inflation rate in cryptocurrencies is massive they just keep on printing them creating up to print them they just create them out of thin air and they keep on coming and as i said you know people think well you know bitcoin is first so it's going to have the most value why i mean just because it's first so what doesn't matter if you're first i mean are you the best i mean the first of something i've said this before was the first telephone the best telephone was the first Radio, the best radio, was the first car the best car? Don't they improve on things all the time? Of course they do. And so if they're going to come up with better cryptocurrencies than Bitcoin, then what's Bitcoin going to be worth? Nothing. What are the other currencies going to be worth? Nothing. Because they can always come up with something that's better. So it can never be a store of value, right? I mean, do you think any kind of technology is a store of value? Is your old cell phone from 10 years ago? How much value did that store? You throw them away. All this stuff that's being created technologically, it doesn't store value. It disappears. Gold is what stores value. Gold stored value for hundreds of years. You know, I read these articles. I mentioned, oh, gold is obsolete. We don't need gold anymore because we have Bitcoin. Look, this is the biggest 
bubble. Probably these cryptocurrencies will go down historically as one of the biggest bubbles in the history of the world. Now, if it gets much bigger, then yeah, then it will be. It will be the biggest bubble. But again, I said before, based on the articles I'm reading where they're basically saying it's a sure thing that Bitcoin's going to 50,000 or 100,000, can't lose, just buy it. Based on the people who are buying it, everybody wants to buy it. I mentioned before, my realtor, hey, I want to, Bitcoin looks good. He sends me an email. I want to invest some money. How about Bitcoin? I heard it's good. I mean, I've got all these anecdotal evidence. Even look, when Janet Yellen was testifying in front of the Capitol Hill, some guy was in the gallery listening to the testimony and he holds up a sign, buy Bitcoin, buy Bitcoin. I mean, it's, you know, on television right behind uh, Janet Yellen, right? Not buy gold by Bitcoin, right? So this is another anecdotal sign of a mania. It's everywhere. You know, everybody's talking about it. Everybody wants to own it. Hey, meanwhile, we're in a bear market. Nobody mentions that. We're in a bear market. And this could just be the beginning of that bear market. But of course, if you're still in, hey, selling your Bitcoins at, uh, you know, right now they're at, you know, 2170 now. It popped up a little bit. Selling your Bitcoins at this price, this is a great price. Buy some gold. Buy some silver. Go to Gold Money website. Get up. If you don't have an account, set up a Gold Money account. They'll take your Bitcoins. You can instantly trade your Bitcoins for gold or silver. Have some real money, a real store of value. I know we had a special earlier in the week. We, we're probably out by now because I didn't. I only thought we had a very limited supply of the junk silver coins. But if we're out of those, you know, you can get. You know, we have those barter bags. We have other ways you can buy silver. It's off the bottom, but it's still very, very close to it. And I think it's got a lot of upside. Another big story this week is the Senate's new version of Obamacare. And remember, when all these guys were running for office, it was all, you know, repeal and replace, right? Well, the new model, basically, of this plan is preserve and expand. Because the bright idea that the Republicans have now is to keep Obamacare, just add something else to it, just expand it and make it bigger. I mean, which is completely ridiculous. If you don't like Obamacare, then why do you want to keep it? But they want to keep it. The Republican plan keeps Obamacare. But what it does do is it allows insurance companies to also offer insurance that people actually want to buy, right, with lower costs or higher deductibles that doesn't cover a bunch of things that people don't need. And they're allowed to discriminate against people with pre-existing conditions. So they're basically saying insurance companies can actually offer insurance as long as they offer Obamacare, too. They can offer insurance and Basically, they're also going to keep the taxes on the so-called rich because they have massive government bailouts for the people who buy the Obamacare plans because that's where all the sick people are going to go. So the insurance companies, by definition, if all the healthy people go to the normal insurance, then the only people buying the Obamacare plans will be people who are already sick and the insurance companies will lose money on every policy they sell. And, and therefore, they're going to need massive government subsidies. How any Republican can be supporting this is beyond me. But the other thing still stands. They still have the, you know, the six-month waiting period, meaning that if you do get really sick, you can still buy the Obamacare plans. You just have a six-month waiting period, which means there's no reason to actually buy these normal insurance plans that are cheaper. Just buy yourself a plan that will pay your expenses for the six months while you're waiting for Obamacare to kick in. That's all you need, which is why this thing is not going to work. Look, you know, if our politicians, Republicans and Democrats, are now going to adopt the idea that health care is some kind of right, right, which it's not. I mean, nothing that has to be given to you is a right, right? That's a privilege. A right is something that you have on your own, 
right? I have a right to free speech. I have a right to pursue my happiness. I have a right to keep my property, right? You, you can't steal it. I have a right to what I own, but I don't have a right to take something from you. And in order to get health care, you got to take it from somebody. Unless you're, you know, you're a doctor and you're, you're taking care of yourself, right? If you want health care as a right, who's going to give it to you? Somebody has to be forced to give you that health care. Money has to be taken from somewhere to spend on your health care. So you can never have a right to something that belongs to some, somebody else. You only have a right to keep what belongs to you. But if we're going to now manufacture this phony right and we're going to say that, hey, all Americans get health insurance or health care, and we're not going to have insurance companies discriminating based on pre-existing conditions, then let's do it right, right? Let's do it the way Switzerland does it. You know, I've had people talk to me about, you know, all these socialized programs in, uh, in, in Europe and other countries. Well, here's an example of how Switzerland, and by the way, Switzerland's health insurance, I think they spend per capita the second most on health insurance of any country, right? America's number one. Switzerland is number two, but you know they're a mile behind us. I, you know, we're you know they're maybe eleven or twelve percent of their GDP, and we're like sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. I forget the exact numbers, but pretty much everybody in Switzerland has insurance. Everybody, I mean, basically nobody doesn't have it. And what do they do? Because it's not the government; it's all private insurance in in Switzerland. Well, there is a law in Switzerland that requires everybody to have insurance. Right? It's a mandate. You have to buy insurance in Switzerland. Now, the penalties for not buying insurance are actually very severe. The penalty for not buying is actually higher than it would cost you to buy the insurance. So you're an idiot not to buy it because when the government catches you and they punish you financially, you're going to your fine for not buying insurance is higher than what it would have cost you to buy the insurance. In fact, you have to pick an insurance company and buy the policy. And if you don't do that and they discover it, they're going to buy it for you and they're going to retroactively bill you for all the premiums that you didn't pay going back to the time that you were supposed to have it. So, I mean, it is it is a harsh penalty. And if you don't pay, they will come after you. They, they will come after your, your bank accounts. They will come after your uh, your paychecks, right? None of this is true. The only way the IRS can penal can punish you is to withhold your refund, right? They can't even garner your bank account or your paycheck. Only if you're due a refund, they can they can they can charge what you owe for not having insurance. They can charge the penalty against your refund, but the penalties are tiny, right? The penalties are tiny compared to the cost of buying insurance. So that's why nobody buys. You just pay the penalty, right? But in Switzerland, the penalties are actually high enough to compel people to buy insurance. And so everybody buys insurance, and the insurance companies cannot discriminate based on pre-existing conditions. They've got to charge everybody if, you know, based on your sex and I think your age, all 25-year-old females pay the same. You know, all 40-year-old males pay the same. Doesn't matter if you're sick, healthy, right? You're going to pay the exact same amount. And the only time that they can discriminate is they have insurance companies that will sell you know, additional insurance, better insurance that maybe has more coverage, more robust coverage. You go into a hospital, maybe you get a private room, you know, they'll cover more stuff, but that's all, you know, based on your risk. So they can discriminate there based on your pre-existing conditions. But the basic plans have to be offered to everybody. And the reason it works is because everybody has to buy. See, there's two, there's two systems you can have. You can have the free market, right? Where people are free not to buy insurance. But if you're going to have people free not to buy insurance, you have to let insurance companies deny coverage to people who are sick. Because the reason that people buy insurance in a free market is because they know 
If they don't buy it when they're healthy, they can't buy it when they're sick. It's because the insurance companies won't sell you a policy if you're sick is the only reason that people buy. So in a free market, what forces you to buy insurance is the fact that you know you can't do it after you get sick. But if the government says, no, 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 it's illegal for the insurance policies to deny you coverage if you're sick, they have to sell you a policy if you're sick. Well, then no one's going to buy it unless the government forces everybody to buy. So either the market has to force you to buy or the government has to force you to buy. But someone has to do it. Now, personally, I like freedom. I think people should be able to choose for themselves. But hey, if we're beyond that, right, if we can't get to that level of freedom anymore in this country, if that's how far we've gone, the left has won, then hey, the Swiss system is better than the one that we got. It's much better than the one that Congress is proposing. It's much better than Obamacare. It's much better uh, than Trump care or whatever this is that they're coming up with in, in Congress right now. But the problem is, American politicians don't have the guts for the Swiss system because then they'd actually have to have high penalties for people who don't buy insurance, which they don't want to do, right? Because they're going to be accused of raising taxes. Like even the Democrats, when they did Obamacare, they knew that it would only work if they if everybody bought and they had penalties for not buying, but they didn't have the guts to make the penalties high enough to stick. And of course, ironically, the only reason the Supreme Court declared it constitutional was because the penalties were too low to work, which means if you want to be honest about wanting the Swiss type system, right, where the government passes a law and everybody has to buy insurance. And when, by the way, the way that the Swiss handle poor people, I think that when you go out and buy a policy, the if the policy costs more than 8% of what you earn, then the taxpayers will make up the difference. So they make sure that poor people can afford it by saying, look, the most you're going to spend is 8%. And it is a very competitive market. I mean, all these Swiss insurance companies compete with one another. So nobody owns the market. So it's highly competitive. They try to keep their costs down. And then, uh, you know, if if the, the premium exceeds 8% of your income, you, you, get a, you get a government subsidy, which means it's taxpayer subsidy. So if we want to do that here, if you want to advocate for that type of system here, which is not really socialized medicine or national medicine, it's just the government requiring you to buy insurance, just like, you know, a lot of local governments, state governments require you to buy automobile insurance, right? You have to buy it. You have a car, you have to buy insurance, but then you have all sorts of private companies that are competing for your business. And, you know, you don't have, you get caught without insurance. There's big penalties for that. So very few people drive without automobile insurance because they don't want to be punished for not having. In fact, in Puerto Rico, it's compulsory insurance. When you register your car, you're billed for your insurance. So everybody buys insurance when they register their car. Now, it's a very small policy with not a lot of limits. So I go out and I buy an additional policy. And because I buy a policy, when you get your registration and when you submit proof that you bought your own insurance, then they give you back the, the 100 bucks or whatever they were billing you for the mandated minimum. But this happens all the time, right? The government just requires you to do it. Now, if we want to do this in America, we got to amend the Constitution if we want to do it right. Now, in reality, look, the government does all kinds of stuff that's illegal. But I just did this big podcast. And if you haven't listened to it, you know, listen to my podcast on what it means to be an American. And the U.S. Constitution delegates powers to the federal government. And if they don't have the power, they can't do it. And there's nothing in the Constitution that says that the federal government can require Americans to buy any private product, let alone health insurance. So if you want to do a Swiss system, which I would favor over what we got now, I don't favor it over a complete free market, but I favor it over the Frankenstein monster that government has created by screwing up the free market. 
But the only way we can do it is to amend the Constitution. You got to go back and you got to amend it. You got to say that Congress has the authority to compel, to force American citizens to buy health insurance and to punish them financially if they don't. You actually have to enumerate that power in an amendment to make it legal. I mean, I wouldn't be in favor of doing it unconstitutionally because I want to respect the Constitution and the limits that it places on the federal government. But, you know, I doubt they'd be able to pass a, such an amendment. But this is this is real. If the politicians really want insurance companies not to be able to discriminate, then everybody's got to buy insurance or face a stiff penalty. But you have all these Republicans. They're saying, oh, we hate the individual mandate. And in fact, the the new Senate bill does get rid of the mandate. Right. Employers are no longer required uh, to buy health insurance and Neither are individuals. You don't, you're not required. There's just this six-month waiting period, which is easy to overcome. But they don't want to take away this pre-existing condition. They want to uphold the, the ban on discriminating. Well, if you're going to do that, be honest about what that means and then say we have to require everybody to buy insurance. Otherwise, they won't. And we have to have very strict penalties, very high penalties on the people who don't buy. But they want to have their cake and eat it too. They, they, you know, they want to say we want people to have freedom. We want people to be able to choose whether or not they want insurance, what kind of insurance they want, or not to have it at all. But we don't want insurance companies to have the same freedom to turn you down if they don't want to cover you. They have to cover you no matter what. And it doesn't work that way. It can't work that way.